Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the TLS. My name is Thea Linarduzzi and I'm a commissioning editor at the TLS and I'm sitting in the big chair this week, both figuratively and in fact quite literally, while editor Stig Abel, bequeather of fictitious introductory titles, is away on the latest in a seemingly interminable string of holidays. He will be back next week. So I'm joined today in a regularly sized chair, I would point out, by podcast regular Lucy Dallas. I thought I'd let you introduce yourself this week with whichever titles you deem fit. This is your chance to diversify. And I was I was wondering about this Mother of Dragons, Queen of the Night, <laughs> Lord of one. the Flies. <laughs> Whatever you take your pick. Person I think we'll in, go with all of those. Person in a regular chair. Arts editor. Let's say arts editor. Arts editor. editor. Okay, Let's fine. All right week. then. Buttoned Thank you up. for having me. Before we get into the show, this is a quick reminder that if you haven't already subscribed to the TLS, you can do so by googling TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section and you'll get six issues for just six pounds, which is really very decent. Coming up on the show this week, what makes popular science books so popular? And is there a hidden danger to making science a subject of water cooler conversations? Alexander Van Tuleken will join us on the phone to discuss. Claire Wills has written an essay on the forgotten stories of Punjabi migrants who came to England in the 1950s and early 60s and the fascinating genre-blending works produced by the mosaic community glossed over by the British as Asians. And finally, TLS history editor David Horsepool will explain how Oliver Cromwell's embarrassingly messy attempts to conquer the Caribbean in the mid-17th century nonetheless set the stage for modern overseas expansion, as well as giving us an early instance of fake news. This week in the TLS, we're looking at a couple of small local issues, such as space, time and our place in the universe. Alexander Van Tulliken reviews two books for us, one called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson, whom he calls the world's best science communicator, the inheritor of Carl Sagan's mantle in that he relaunched Sagan's fantastically successful TV series Cosmos a couple of years ago and got 40 million viewers for it. The other book is by a bubble physicist, Helen Chertsky, about much smaller and more down-to-earth matters, such as the bubbles in bread dough and how much salt you would need to make a bath as salty as the ocean. Now, here's a spoiler alert. It's about 10 kilos. 
Alexander Van Tulliken, I think you are joining us, in fact, from a lay-by in Ontario down the phone, which is extremely dedicated of you, and we're very grateful. Well, I'm always very happy to be with you. I'm on my way to the airport, but my plane is (laughs) for a few hours, so it's a lovely interlude. And it's a lovely piece you've done for us about popular science books, and in particular physics. Um, And I wondered if you can explain to us your initial concerns that you have about the level of expertise or information that Neil deGrasse Tyson is trying to impart in his book? Well, I think he, he presents this extraordinary idea that he wants to make the reader of his book culturally conversant in astrophysics. And I guess I would have thought that astrophysics would be the last topic at a dinner party that someone could bring up where you could still say, look, I'm awfully sorry, but I've got absolutely no idea about that at all. That, that is, apparently that is no longer acceptable. Um, so so he's he's written a book for people in a hurry. And he, he says... Look, if you're not able to absorb the universe through seminars or television documentaries or books or journals or any other way, this book is for you. And then proceeds to give you 200 pages of pretty dense but very readable astrophysics. Uh, He makes two claims. He says, look, I'll make you foundationally fluent, which I think is probably a bit absurd in 200 pages. But the idea of being able to have a conversation is is a really, really interesting one. And I think he in some ways pulls it off. I mean, the point of all the popular science books is to, is to open it out, isn't it? To take it away from the experts so that, so that we can understand the ideas, if, of course, not the technicalities behind it. It really made me wonder this. I mean, possibly the point of all books is to make you culturally conversant. I mean, the only reason anyone reads Dan Brown or, or Donna Tart is to be able to have the conversation of the summer with well, everyone not, else who's not read the only the reason. <laughs> Some people well, like reading, Santa. <laughs> I have to say that because we work for the TLS. I guess pe- people read for pleasure, but beyond that, those that that sense of obligation that we feel must must be imposed on us from conversations. And so it's it's an interesting thing to try and do it with science. It's a funny thing because astrophysics you could read for the pure joy and the pure awe of it, and so. It's an odd pitch to say there are these people in a hurry out there. And I think I know the people he means. I mean, he lives in New York, which is probably the most hurried city in the world. And Mm. so you have those people you meet at parties who always have one eye kind of wandering over the rest of the crowd, wondering what they're missing. I guess he's trying to mop up them Mm. and uh, persuade them that they should know a bit of astrophysics as well. What he doesn't do is, is get you into a conversation about astrophysics the way that most of us would end up talking about this stuff, which is either through newspaper headlines or through movies or television. You know, and if you think of something like Interstellar or Star Trek or Big Bang Theory, there is lots of astrophysics out in sort of popular culture. Mm. And he doesn't give you a route in through that. Instead, he writes it like the Bible and he just says, so here, in the beginning... And he, mm. and he goes from there. It sounds quite admirable to me because we, we've got plenty of Star Trek and the Big Bang Theory and, and, and Interstellar, haven't we? I agree. And I think the book is extraordinary because anyone else would fall flat on their faces, I think, trying to do what he's done. But he is such a charming, lovely man. But there's something about, I don't know if you've ever watched any, any of his television programmes. Yeah. No matter how much you want to dislike the premise of something as un erudite or as, as, as sort of unambitious, these people in a hurry who've only got 200 pages to learn about the whole universe, mm. he manages to make it um, both awe-inspiring and quite sweet at the same time. And, and the, you know, the tone, I guess your mileage will vary a bit with the tone. He, he, there's a lot of dad jokes in there, and, and uh, mm. which, which are pretty dreadful, but 
he somehow manages to get get away with it. I think because of who he is, he's a very intriguing character in himself. And he's very engaging, isn't he? Whether he's talking or writing, or the who he is 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 crucial in your in your discussion of why it is that books like this are so so popular. The fact of his being a scientist mm. accounts for the appeal. I mentioned in in the review Stephen Hawking's book, which is one of the best selling science books by a scientist of all time, and yet that book is unreadable to anyone who's not a, a serious physicist for the last few few chapters. And what I think is amazing about that is that you are still encountering the mind of the scientist. And that's, you know, science journalists are very important. They can, they can simplify and communicate topics and make them relevant in ways that are valuable. But there is this intrigue. There is something mad about what scientists do. There is something really alchemical about the, the, the business of the knowledge factory in the lab. Um, and to be able to sit down with their thoughts and almost not understand them is is quite thrilling. I mean, in, in the review, I liken it to to uh, when I was at the London London Olympics. I ran along beside the marathon for a little bit, and of course, I, can, I you know I can't keep up. I'm not trying to win it or anything. I ran along for about for about twenty yards. Mm. But you get some sense of how their brain is is working, I guess, which is which is quite thrilling. Yes, because I was going to ask you about that because the other book that you talk about by Helen Chersky, she's also a physicist. Mm. She's got the lovely uh, title of Bubble Physicist, which is a a new mm. job that we should all be aspiring to. But there is also, I mean, isn't there an argument for books that we can follow all the way through? Is it always useful for us to go, oh, we are not worthy, we don't understand? Do you know what I mean? Surely in terms of if you're talking about outreach, you actually do want people to understand and to have a clear idea of where the advances are and about what's happening. I I think that's right. I mean, these two books are are sort of um, almost opposites. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson is dealing with the whole universe and Helen Chersky talks about what is in front of you. And her book, unlike his, her book is very understandable, even to a a real layperson who does not, you you know, if you you haven't gone beyond science GCSEs, you'll be able to follow almost all of it. And I guess what, what her book does is make you ask questions about the world around you in a rather nice way. Um, she, she talks about how milk is homogenized and why coffee, when you spill coffee, it dries in rings. What happens when you chuck a mouse down a mine shaft as opposed to what happens when you chuck a horse down a nice. mine shaft. And there's all sorts of lovely things like that. Well, the, the horse splats and the mouse bounces, basically. Oh, okay. um, which you possibly survive? didn't need to be a physicist. <laughs> the mouse survives. The mouse survives is, is the interesting bit. Oh, okay. Um, um, so uh, if you're if you're chucking any animal down a down a mine shaft, make, make sure, sure it's, a mouse. Uh, it's smaller than a mouse and definitely not as big as a. And horse. we say, please, um, please don't try this at home. Come <laughs> <laughs> as the usual disclaimers for the TLS yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think I mean what what both of the books do. I think is whether you're looking up at the night sky or whether you are looking at the very sort of simple physical phenomenon of, of being alive and moving through the world. Um, they allow you to encounter the world in a way that that may not I, 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 you may not have any more real wisdom about it, but you may feel more comfortable posing a question. And I guess that's very impressive. I, I think I having having read um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, there were all, all those new photos of Saturn came out, and I read those articles in the paper, and I probably wouldn't have done before. And I read them because I thought, oh, I'm the kind of person who reads about astrophysics now. 
Mm. And that's that's a pretty impressive place to have got me. I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier on in the piece and that you say um, when you're not sure about the level of expertise that he kind of claims to be taking us to. And you say, is there a danger of the reader becoming a boulevardier mm. of scientific conversation or worse, a sincere tourist who believes that because he's read the guidebook, he has something to say. But what's wrong with that? I don't see anything wrong with either of those positions. Surely that's better than not knowing anything or caring at all. <laughs> I guess it depends on how much of a, a conversational snob you are. I, I think I think you're right, and I would much rather... I think it's it's phenomenal that people take an interest in things that are obscure and difficult. And I guess any TLS reader is, is in that gang already. No, there is no one read, reader who can understand everything in, in any single edition of the TLS. So I think for the people who are reading it because they're in a hurry and just want to join in a conversation. I think that motive is suspect. And I guess my worry embarking on it was that he was trying to write a book that would be a sort of bluffer's guide to astrophysics. And I don't think that gets, I don't think that, that I don't right. think that is so interesting. Yeah. Sure. Um, and instead he doesn't really do that. Instead, what he tries to do is infuse you. I mean, I tried a few of his gambits on a couple of astrophysicists. Mm -hmm. And if you're actually trying to bluff your way with an astrophysicist, it buys you about eight seconds of conversation. If you say to someone, do you think that, you know, the marriage of general relativity and quantum mechanics needs an overhaul? They're a physicist. Their eyes will light up. Mm, they will answer you. And they will then <laughs> speak for 10 minutes and you will not understand a word of it. But I think that's okay. I, I think that there's not actually the book is so both the books are so charming that they don't they don't lead you to believe that you're coming away with a diploma in any of this. They're allowing you to be excited about talking to an astrophysicist, and I think that's pretty good. I mean, it it might get you through a, a blind date with a with a. <laughs> Star Trek enthusiast. <laughs> I mean, my eight-year-old son is is the other person who I was trying it on because he um he you know like all eight-year-olds, where does the Earth come from? Mm, where does the Moon come from? Deep. Where does the solar system, galaxy? Yeah, just these they ask the big endless questions. questions. Yeah. And so I, for once, I, I felt like um, world's greatest dad because I had an answer <laughs> to where does the universe come from? Yeah. And it was all pinched from Neil deGrasse Tyson, but for that. For that sort of 15 minutes, um, he'd got me out of the soup, which I was very grateful for. On that happy note, um, <laughs> we'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Um, and thanks very much for joining us. Your Thank dedication you has been noted also. It's, lo <laughs> it's lovely to speak to you. And you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. It does strike me as something that's very important, though, this this job of, of kind of priming or, or supplying all of these little openings into this world that would otherwise be so... I think difficult to access. I think it's absolutely paramount because uh, I think I was saying to you earlier, there's so much, we are so, our lives are so governed and so affected by science and particularly technology yeah. at the moment that if everybody thinks, oh, I, don't, I can't do that, you know, that's not, I can't, I don't know about that, therefore I have no way in, therefore I have no engagement. Yeah. Um, you, you, you have to be engaged. Yeah. Also because the general public does play a massive role in, in what funding is allocated and what isn't. And so yeah. and also in, not having the understanding it, is only going to lead into you know, prejudiced decisions or exactly. And whereas ones. And anybody can understand the ideas. That's the point. You don't have, we don't have to be able to understand the equations, mm. but everybody can understand the ideas. And the ideas behind quantum mechanics, the few that I know, are bonkers. I mean, they're brilliant ideas. Mm. And so we don't actually need to chuck a mouse down a well. No, I don't, I don't think we should check a nice time. Moving on. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1958, Madho Ram Mahimi said goodbye to his mother and the wife he had only just met, left his village in the Indian state of Punjab and set off for England. A year later, he was working in a foundry in Wolverhampton, and once his shifts and overtime had finished, he'd head to the pub where his fellow migrant workers all found refuge. What happened there was something more interesting than the usual games of darts and pints of weak bitter, because Maddo Ram was performing, and in doing so constantly composing, an epic poem called My Passage to England. More interestingly, he adapted traditional Punjab forms to convey and explain to his companions the modern industrial society in which they were all now trying to settle. Claire Wills, who studied the perhaps only surviving bound copy of the poem, argues that this work belongs to a crucial movement connected to but not absorbed by our existing understanding of post-colonial literature. There is, she says, a specifically immigrant writing that is testament to both adaptation and cultural resilience. Claire joins us in the studio now. Um, Mado Ram, he's he's a perfect guide to the body of Punjabi stories we're concerned with here. So perhaps perhaps you could begin by telling us about the kind of man he was and a bit about the country that he's left behind. The only information I have about Mado Ram is what I can glean from the poem that was found in a Wolverhampton bookshop in the late 80s or early 90s. He came to Britain in 1958. We think that he was in his 20s. And according to the poem, which is a kind of autobiography, he has just met his wife and decides that there is no work in the Punjab um, and he'll come to Britain like everybody else that to see that country of gold. He was from Bardwaj in Jalandur, uh, which was 
We've recently had lots of information and news about the 70th anniversary of partition in the Punjab. And so he lived in a place where partition had been very violent and difficult. Um, so he was brought up in a society where Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus lived all together. So he already lived in a culture which was used to, unfortunately, a very, very violent and forced migration. And it was primarily because of that, and also a history of Punjabis and Sikhs in particular um, being employed in the British Army. These two reasons that made the Punjab a particular um, area where, um, from which migrants would come to Britain. And so what did, what did he find when he came to Britain? Well, he arrived in 1958 and there had just been um, rather a long two-year recession and he came looking for work which he did not find for some time. Eventually, he found work in one of the Wolverhampton foundries. This would have been a very old-fashioned foundry where, you know, you're working in very uncomfortable conditions, uh, extremely hot, lots of kind of back-breaking manual work in the 50s. In the early 60s, they, they, they modernised. But in the late 50s, you couldn't really get... British people to work in them because there were many more new factories opening up with canteens, you know, loos, things like that, where much, much nicer working conditions. So he finds a job there and he joins quite a, a vibrant Punjabi community, which is already existing. Um, and he talks about it very much as centering on the pub. Uh, he would have lived in um, a shared house, lots of people sharing um, a terraced house in Wolverhampton. Um, and because of the overcrowded conditions, people tended to spend a lot of their time in pubs. And the pubs became places where creative and cultural expression could take place. And so he, he writes his poem for performing in the pub. And it's an extraordinary poem, which he writes over 12 years, between 1958 and 1970, slowly adding his experiences in as, as they occur. So um, he gets used to drinking alcohol. He gets used to smoking cigarettes, to having a white girlfriend. He makes it sound terribly, terribly easy to get a girlfriend. You just offer them a drink and they fling themselves <laughs> at you. Um, he then gets lots, you know, someone tells his wife or his mother-in-law back or his mother back home. His, his wife is living with his mother because he's, she's moved on marriage. And this is all put into the poem. She writes to him complaining that um, he stopped sending money because he's spending all his money on his new white girlfriend. And therefore, she's losing status at home and his mother is being horrible to her. And she's desperate for him to invite her to England. And she turns up and she's absolutely delighted with everything. She's delighted with her terraced house. Um, it's a wonderful description of the sitting room. Flowers on the floor, flowers on the walls. <laughs> Obviously, flowery wallpaper. Um, she loves the flushing loo. She loves all this stuff. Um, and they have children and the children grow up and they eventually take them back on holiday to Jolandor. And he also writes about the kind of shock for second-generation Punjabis encountering the homeland for mm -hmm. the first time and their horror at what they find, really. 
This poem, I mean, it's as you say, it's been composed over 12 years, constantly revised, and it's a performed thing. It's an oral tradition, a, tr- a traditional form yes. that he's brought with him uh, from the Punjab. At what point and why does he then decide to commit it to paper, to, to publish it? Well, we don't know, but my guess is... He, he must have been a bit of a kind of local celebrity. People liked this poem and they kept on inviting him to perform it. Um, I think there are a couple of different reasons why he would have decided that he would publish it. It was published in, I think, very, very limited um, edition uh, by a company that was used to making wedding invitations. You know, they needed a Punjabi-type printer. Um, It's 50 pages, sort of A4 pages. So it's not published as a book, it's published as a kind of um, leaflet. Mm. Do you think it was for almost for kind of the people in the pub? Like a programme? Or for, well, or for kind of friends and family? I think it was for friends and family. But I think the, the interesting thing about it, from my point of view, searching for first person voices on migration, is that the decision to publish comes about, I think, partly because he's living in a community where everybody is telling their story. The 50s and 60s are, you know, if you think of everybody from Alan Silito to uh, Caribbean migrants, Sam Selvin, George Mm. Lamming, um, to Irish migrants. Penguin is, you know, churning out huge numbers of books. Picador, um, these kind of little paperbacks, which are really recording first-person experiences. And I I think he also is part of that move. So the poem is in Punjabi, and it's for a Punjabi environment and a Punjabi community, a very small Wolverhampton pub community. But at the same time, I think it's got a consciousness of being a record of migration, a record of experience which is worth preserving and recording. And that, I think, is what's really interesting about it. I mean, it's a wonderful poem and it's extremely funny. It's also, though, I think, from what you say, it seems to be by its very nature, it's already a really nice organic blend because, as you say, he's writing it in the pub. So that's extremely kind of English thing. Yes, exactly. For the pub community, which he wasn't doing before, was he? And also I was interested to see that you said in the piece that some of the... The, the differences are erased or at least washed over a bit more, like caste differences and, and gradations that, that might have been very important in the Punjab or much less so in the Wolverhampton pub. Is that right? It's right to a certain extent. I mean, there are scholars of Punjabi caste who know much more about this than I do. But I think one of the things that happens in the very early period of migration is that Distinctions of caste have to a certain extent Mm. go by the board. Um, The pub is a great place for that to happen because you're not um, sharing food with one another. You're you're being given a pint by the bartender. Right, so everyone has their own individual... Yes. And there are examples, so I I talk a bit about um, one of the foundries in... It's not quite clear where it is. A sociologist goes in and and kind of does several days' uh, observation and he notes that... Some of Indian workers will eat by themselves and others will join together to eat. And clearly what, what he doesn't articulate is that that is, must be to do with caste. Mm, um, so yeah. th- those distinctions are kept. And at the beginning, there's only one Gurdwara for all mm. Sikhs. And slowly different Gurdwaras are built which are differentiated according to caste. 
So as more people come, that sort of melding. Yeah, but in that first away. wave, as you say, everyone everyone's in it together. Everyone's yes. worshiping the same place. So the common and drinking experience. pints in the same place. Yes. I'm listening the to the poem comes together. To the fore. Yes. And so yeah. you yes. get you get those recurring themes about uh, the women folk, for example, who have become empowered by their new lives. Oh yes, and they're all a bit. <laughs> the men are a bit alarmed because the women are kind <laughs> of wearing yes, trousers. That is and, a yeah. very very <laughs> common theme in many yeah. of the. So there are. Madhu Ram's poem is a kissa, um, which is a very long epic form, but much more common are um, these folk songs called Bolian, or the singular is Boli, um, which riff endlessly on the new power of women, the mm. fact that they're, they've changed their fashion, they've got money now in their pockets. And, you know, it, it really did change um, s- certainly the dynamic of the couple. I mean, all of this does lead us to to the conclusion that we need to do a certain amount of redressing um, in the way that we approach post-colonial literature in this country. I think there are other forms of immigrant expression which perhaps we haven't paid sufficient attention to. And it's partly because it's really hard to access. This material was written in Punjabi. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to come across a book by uh, a guy called Jaginda Shamsher, who, who published a tiny study, sort of desktop published, but it's in the British Library, um, a study of Punjabi writing in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, it's called The Overtime People. And he writes about Punjabi newspapers, short stories, the folk songs I've talked about, although he didn't know about Madho Ram, and kind of novels. They're just one or two novels. What's interesting about the book is that there's a bibliography but without any references. And this, I, I think this is kind of a, a telling thing about the book, about Shamsha's book. He was a postman. He worked as a postman um, while he lived in England for, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, at some level, he's gathering together all this information and it's translated into English. It must have been a huge amount of work. Uh, he's gathering it together because he wants to put this migrant experience on record in the same way that Caribbean migrant experience is so well documented by all the novelists and, and you know, commentators, like from Stuart Hall to Sam Selvin to George Lamming, Andrew Salkey. He's aware of this and he wants to put this on record. And yet at some level, he also can't imagine an audience beyond his own community. So there's no bibliography, there's no way of checking anything. There's no way of accessing the work further. Because he's not writing it for the Academy or for anybody else. He's just... Yes. He's, he's writing it for, um, not literally, but metaphorically, the pub. Yes, yes. In in a way, that ended up for me being a great boon because, um, you know, after... It took me years to research this material, but um, after trying for a very long time to you know, transliterate the titles in the back and, you know, mm. go to SOAS and go around, try and see, it, are these books anywhere? I eventually found him uh, via Facebook in Canada. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And um, he gave me the phone numbers of many of these quite elderly Well, that's the way to people. do it, directly. Yes, and <laughs> I went around the country and was able to pick up uh, their sing- often single copies mm. um, that they'd had published it back in Amritsar and Jalandor, Um and then the problem was finding a translator um, because Punjabi is a vernacular language and most of our South Asian studies places in Cambridge, for example, um, don't teach Punjabi. I was very lucky to find um, 
a woman called Beryl Danjal, who was an uh, English woman who, who had married uh, a Punjabi migrant, actually one of the um, Ugandan Asian migrants, and who, she taught herself Punjabi, and therefore she was able to translate the work. And in fact, I dedicate the book to her because she was uh, the, the book could not have existed had it not been for Beryl. Sadly, she died before it was published, but um, I was very lucky to find her. And so the translations that appear in, in your book and, and in the piece here that we have in this are week's all by TLS her. are all by her. I wonder whether it might be a nice way to end then, if you if you would just read us that bit there. There's a nice long quotation there, which is um, Mado Ram performing. Well, that's what he performed in, in the pub. Yes, this is a passage in the poem in which he's talking about the first night he arrives in Wolverhampton and he finds a group of blokes in the pub and this is, this is how he sets the scene. All of them spoke of their own merits, each one thinking himself better than the others. Some said, I had a thousand biggers of land and people called us Sardar, that's chief. Some said, there we were warriors, no one stood against us. Some said, we had stacks of wood, we were great traders. Some said, the shop in the bazaar was ours, they called us great merchants. Some said... We worked in fabrics, clothing. We were doing a great deal of business. Some said, my work was a watchmaker. We made a great business. Some said, we traded in leather. We made lots of money. Some said, we worked as butties. They called us contractors. Some said, we worked as jewellers. We made lakhs of rupees. Some said, we were the district scribes. We oversaw everything. Some said, I was the police superintendent. I swaggered and ordered everyone about. Some said I was a village accountant there, getting sugar cane and rice free. As one, they were all in England and were just fools who were full of pride. When pub closing time came, they all got up and went home. They would all spend a comfortable night and tomorrow they would get up in the morning and go to work. Oh, Mado Ram, they all forgot their troubles, those that had made their own troubles with the past. That's the passport. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs> Finally, we, uh, we bring you news fresh from 1655 that Oliver Cromwell's fleet has carried off a great and wonderful victory in the Caribbean. After three great and bloody fights, the French army succumbed to a total routing except none of that was true and the whole report was a fantasy. Here to tell us what Cromwell's fleet was actually doing in the Caribbean and what far broader purpose this half-witted propaganda was serving is the TLS's history editor David Horsepool, author of Cromwell, England's Protector, who has written a review in this week's paper of The English Conquest of Jamaica by Carla Gardina Pestana. I'm wondering if you would, in fact, like to supplement your title, history editor and author of etc., um, given that Stig is away. Uh, that's very kind. Possibly not, except at the moment I feel like the token southerner. But, uh, <laughs> actually token male. Token white male southerner. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. often my role. I hope you feel very comfortable. So um, <laughs> let's, um, let's begin at the beginning. There was... I mean, there was an initial attempt to take a large chunk of territory, but it wasn't supposed to be Jamaica and the French weren't actually involved. So, I mean, what what actually happened? That, that's right. Uh, so the initial idea, although it was kept a complete secret, was that this large fleet that was sent off by the, the Commonwealth uh, under Oliver Cromwell was meant to attack 
Hispaniola, meant to conquer Hispaniola, which is the island of upon which Haiti and the Dominican Republic are based now. Um, and it did, once it eventually got there. I mean, in that uh, wonderful pamphlet that you read out extracts from actually was written before anything had happened at all. So they hadn't attacked Hispaniola or anywhere else. Um, and they certainly weren't attacking the French. Uh, Hispaniola belonged to the Spanish. It was a, a, a Spanish imperial possession, and it's, I think, the second largest island in the Caribbean. So it was a huge prize, um, but it wasn't a very successful attempt at attacking it. Um, it was a total disaster, in fact, um, there was a, a landing on Hispaniola of several hundred men, um, and they were basically routed by about 80 Spanish defenders, some of whom, most shamingly for them, were women. Um, and they, dis they succumbed to what um, Guardiana Pestana calls rampant cowardice and basically ran away. I mean, it was like Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And so they got back on board their ships and then they had a choice whether to sail home and uh, see what everybody made of this wonderful trip that they'd been on or to see if they could find some form of consolation. And that's how they ended up deciding on Jamaica, which was also a Spanish possession, but rather smaller. Um, and not, and not particularly promising as a, as a conquest. No, although you wouldn't know it to, to see what they wrote about it afterwards, but um, the, absolutely, it was, it was barely colonised. It was only in, on the sort of fringes colonised. It was not very well cultivated. Uh, it certainly wasn't a kind of sugar um, producer as um, the only other significant British possession in the Caribbean became Barbados, this huge sugar-producing island and home of thousands upon thousands of African slaves. Jamaica wasn't in that position at all. It was not very well defended, and it was a fairly easy thing for this very large fleet to take it, um, which they managed to do. And then after having done so, they then had to talk up what a marvellous... Uh, conquest this was and how actually it was much better than the initial idea of Hispaniola. Well, this was part of the Western design, so-called by Cromwell and, and his men, and, and so the, the idea was then to, to attract settlers to come to Jamaica. Yes, that's right. Um, well, the Western design was even more ambitious, um, so it wasn't just to um, attack Hispaniola, it was to entirely drive the Spanish out of the Spanish main, the Spanish Americas which was a, an incredibly rich prize. The, the Spanish silver fleet had, for decades then, uh, you know, over a century, been going back and forth uh, across the Atlantic and, and delivering great coffers full of money to, um, to the Spanish crown and had, in the past, been attacked by English heroes like Francis Drake or pirates, as the Spanish thought of them. The idea of the whole enterprise was to clear the Spanish out of South America and the Caribbean entirely. It's so Jamaica's a pretty poor kind of consolation prize when you've you set your sights that high, sort of going out in the first round when you think you're going to win the World Cup. Sort of <laughs> That's a fairly extraordinary plan anyway. 
And then they kept it completely... Why did they keep it secret? Because Well, I suppose they didn't want the Spanish to know about it. Would be one reason they kept it secret. It and is an extraordinary plan. they thought they were going plan. to fail, I suppose. Extraordinary they wouldn't have thought... Chance. They didn't think they were going to fail because it was Cromwell. He never thought he was of going course. to fail because he thought that he had God on his side. Um, but there was, a, there was so a, the a religious dimension to this as well, wasn't there? It yeah. wasn't all, you know, military or strategic. Or... Almost everything Cromwell did had principally a religious dimension about it. Um, and this was that the Spanish, being Catholics, um, had no right to this empire, uh, basically, was the justification for it. Um, there's a little more to it than that. And also they convinced themselves that the Spanish treated the indigenous peoples very badly and that these indigenous peoples would rise up when the noble Protestants came along and um, sort of come into their arms, which they were absolutely surprised didn't happen in Jamaica. Um, and they ended up... One of the more fascinating aspects of this book is it um, talks about the deal that the uh, English and Scottish uh, planters had to uh, make with... Spanish ex-slaves, freed slaves, who had set up their own settlements in parts of Jamaica and just refused to give in to this conquest. Um, they couldn't clear them out at all, the, 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 the planters. And, and so the beginning of Jamaica's, rather interestingly, comes down to a kind of agreement between black and white, between African and European... And this was not the future of Jamaica at all, of course. Um, you know, Jamaica became a slave state um, and, you know, a very uh, horrible place from about the late 17th century onwards. But it had this very brief moment when um, the two sides did actually cooperate, mainly because the planters weren't able to actually defeat Yes, I was about the, to say, it's all very well for them to say, we'll rescue you from Spanish cruelty, but they did the deal because they because they couldn't win militarily. Yes, they? they initially said they wanted a rescue from Spanish cruelty, but then they were rather surprised when nobody wanted to be rescued from Spanish cruelty. <laughs> or at least Help, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't mind being rescued from Spanish cruelty, but they weren't particularly keen on replacing it with yes. British cruelty. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. But they were surprised. Oh, yeah. Cromwell was always surprised, and, and, and his uh, followers were always surprised if he didn't win and if people just didn't agree with him. He just couldn't quite How can understand. they not want the revolution? Well, exactly. Is um, Gardena Pestana's book, is it, is it an, an important one? Is it revising or just recasting of this particular phase of history? I think it's reasonably important in that it's a sort of forgotten corner of um, Cromwell's time and it's always been rather dismissed because of this huge ambition and rather second-rate consolation. But it is actually the start of something very big. Um, it's the start of this kind of expansive imperial design and there were there was some talk of when Charles II came to the throne after Cromwell's death um, and the failure of the uh, Republic there was some talk of giving it back to the Spanish but then they, rather, they decided that they'd rather like to keep hold of it and so it became a kind of central plank of the British Empire really. All of this fiasco came not long before the end for Cromwell he died only a few years later in 1658. And, in fact, this Sunday, September 3rd, is the anniversary of, of that day. Uh, yeah. So, well done. Um, well done, you. <laughs> well yeah. done, Cromwell. So, um, can we end on, this, on the much broader matter of Oliver Cromwell's legacy? I mean, is he, 
Is he more likely to be seen as the god, the grandfather of modern British democracy or as a genocidal military leader? I mean, I suspect it's a mixture of, of the two and a lot in well, between. Well, <laughs> it depends. I think before I answer that, I'd like to say as interesting fact about Sunday, September the 3rd, the day he died, is he seems to have decided to die on that day because it was also the day that he twice defeated the Scots. So on September the 3rd, that's the date of the Battle of Dunbar. September the 3rd is also the date of the Battle of Worcester, which he seems to have delayed by a day in order to fight it <laughs> on the same day. Trouble so I suspect, Yeah, I suspect that he also delayed his own death. I think he died out of willpower. Yeah. yeah. I'm, well, I'm quite li- kind I'm of willing piece, to believe that, yes. <laughs> but I think when you ask if, you know, would he be remembered as a genocidal military dictator... Certainly, say, in Ireland, in popular memory, mm. yes, uh, that's what he... He's probably better remembered in Ireland than he is in, in England, to, to be frank, or, or anywhere else in Britain, because he's got a very bad reputation indeed for the conquest of Ireland that happened shortly after the execution of Charles I in 1649 and the sieges of Drogheda and Wexford. He would have argued that the reason those were so cruel and harsh and bloody was absolutely to show that if you didn't surrender this is what happened to you uh, which were the kind of normal laws of war at the time but actually what seems to have happened subsequently is that the Irish defenders decided that Cromwell's armies couldn't be trusted at all and so then refused to surrender and so it was even more long drawn out and even more bloody than than it might have been um, I mean, Ireland was absolutely the, the worst part of the whole civil war throughout the period, but starting in 1641, before it started in, in England. So that's probably his legacy there. Here, I sort of rather doubt whether he has much purchase on popular... I saw I saw a survey only a few years ago that sort of seemed to suggest that he was one of the favourite Britons or something. Well... Maybe when people start to think about history, they think about him because he was this great general. He was an extraordinary... I mean, that is a sort of undoubted fact about him. As a military leader, he's extraordinary. Um, He's totally inexperienced, had no uh, military experience whatsoever and went from that in 1642 to being this absolutely unbeatable general by the time of 1649, the kind of end of the Second Civil War. presided over the the new model army, the first kind of modern British army. So from that point of view, he has a reputation. The idea of him as a sort of father of democracy was much more interested in sort of squashing democracy when it reared its ugly head at the Putney debates among the levellers and so on. Um, And there's there's a church you can go to in Burford in Oxfordshire. I think it's Oxfordshire, it's Cotswold certainly, uh, where you can see the bullet holes where the um, execution of um, some levellers who rose up against Cromwell's army, uh, Cromwell's England. Um, they were executed. Um, and Burford is actually a place where uh, there's an um, annual uh, sort of remembrance. It's, um, I think I wrote in my books where he sort of lost the left, as it were. The good old cause went, went in a different direction from Cromwell. So he's not really remembered for that either. I think it's, he's becoming remembered, if at all, as somehow related to the more famous Thomas. <laughs> and I'm afraid we'll have to end it there. David Horsepool, thank you very much for your time. You are released thank you to the outside me. world. You may return to the office. I certainly Lucky shall. Man. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. 
that is all we have time for this week. Thanks very much to Alexander Van Tulliken, Claire Wills and David Horsepool for joining us. Do go to the tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which is led by Margaret Drabble on the abiding charm of Horace Walpole, purveyor of literary luxuries, and features a potted history of NASA's involvement, or not, with the pressing social movements of its time. Catherine Hughes, meanwhile, tells a circular story about sex, humanity and shiny jewellery. And we have Bob Dylan, The Musical. Reviews of new fiction by Nicole Krauss, Ned Bowman, Roddy Doyle and Claire Missard join a great deal more. Tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions and please do review us on iTunes. It's a big help. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.